It's been six weeks since Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson took to Instagram to announce they had been diagnosed with COVID-19. The next day, Australian Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton announced his positive test to the virus. That same day, Melbourne's Formula One Grand Prix was cancelled, and in the subsequent week, everything that once was normal had changed. We were thrust under the cover of isolation and separated from friends, family, and colleagues. This is the Undercover Podcast. Welcome back to Undercover. This is episode three. My name is Tyson Whelan. At the time of this recording, two and a half million people worldwide have confirmed cases of severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2. 160,000 people who had the novel coronavirus have died, and experts say the true numbers may be many times more. But today, We're not going to focus on the virus. We're going to focus on humans and our capacity to adapt, to learn, and to thrive. The theme of today's episode is new skills. We want to explore how individuals undergoing extraordinary circumstances have found ways to innovate in order to maintain a semblance of normality. We'll hear from teachers and students From friends learning how to stay connected while socially distanced, we'll speak to business owners who've had to completely rethink their model in order to survive, and we'll hear from introverts observing from afar how others are adopting their lifestyle. But first, what new skills have you learned? I'd assume most of our audience have more time on their hands during this COVIDian crisis. Not everyone for obvious reasons, but most. Some have taken to jigsaw puzzle construction, some have learned to paint, some have even learned how to lie on the couch for eight hours straight binge-watching Netflix series. I, on the other hand, have taken to cooking. And later in the episode, you'll hear how I went whipping together a family meal for my brother and my parents. But now it's time to hear from our reporters on today's episode. School teachers and students all over the world are needing to develop new skill sets in order to adapt to learning online during the coronavirus crisis. For most, this requires entirely new ways of thinking, communicating, and keeping motivated. But how is this move to distance learning affecting some of Australia's most vulnerable students? Georgia Bennett Murphy has the story. We've got a generation now of of Indigenous youth that on the on the verge of really closing closing within inverted commas the gap um, between First Nations Australians and not non Indigenous Australians the the gap being you know, the health gap as well as the education gap so we're really on this verge but we but now we've been throwing this a spanner in the works. Nara Gumba Daru. My name is Tyrone Bean, and I'm a proud descendant of the Kabi Kabi, Waka Waka, Kwandamuka, and Bindal Nations of South East and North Queensland. 
I also acknowledge my that through my paternal side, I have English, Irish, Scottish and Welsh bloodlines. However, due to my upbringing, I've not grown up in those countries, thus I do not have a strong connection to that land. Tyrone teaches Year 7 and 8 geography, as well as First Nation Australian education within RE at Trinity Grammar School. He also takes on a management role as one of the Indigenous programs coordinators. In a typical day pre-coronavirus lockdown, he would teach up to three classroom lessons while spending the remaining time working on the school's Indigenous programs. Part of the role would be to try and, to try and bring in some, um, some really deadly Indigenous people. So seeing, seeing Indigenous people who are actually teaching within classrooms or just having a little presence within the school, it's just really challenging the walls that, you know, you don't have to be a rapper, you don't have to be an athlete. Um, you know, the stereotype of substance abuse, um, alcoholism, domestic violence, low education, um, health gap, it's all these, like, this is within the four walls. And, yes, yes, it um, it's out there. And I definitely, yeah, I, well, I would agree and I'll, I'll be the first one to say that, yes, it's in the communities and this is happening, but this doesn't define who you are. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, students all over the world have been forced to learn from home. Students and teachers alike have been confronted with needing to quickly adapt to a completely new way of learning, with classes largely being conducted via video conferencing tools. But seeing your teachers and friends only through a computer screen for an indefinite period of time will certainly prove difficult for many. Tyrone says Indigenous students in particular will really feel the effects of no longer having this face-to-face contact or hands-on learning environment that comes with physically attending classes. We've got a massive term coming up. We um, we know, so as a team, we know that our fellows are going to find it extremely tough this term. Our students are still, you know, two to four years behind um, and we say behind the Australian curriculum standards. We know that if we don't get on our, the front foot at the moment, then our fellows can go from anywhere between being two to four years behind to be four to six years behind in the space of a term. There's been a lot of hard work put in by people like Tyrone to help close the gap between First Nation Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. According to the latest census data, the proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander persons who had completed Year 12 or its equivalent rose by more than 10% from 2006 to 2016. And there is an important need to ensure this positive trend continues throughout the COVID-19 crisis. It's understanding that their reality is different to the reality of 99% of um, students at Trinity Grammar School. So it's, all right, instead of talking about, you know, maybe like what PlayStation game or something like that, it's like, okay, like what, what fish did you catch? Did you go fishing today or did you go and get into Goanna? Like tell us a story about you and Goanna or relating the content back to what they know. Something that I also do with all my students is that on the Fox every every Friday, it's R&B Friday. So every Friday if I'm teaching, we do a little spin the wheel, and if it lands on one of the students, they've got to um, they've got to write a little five minute, about five minutes to write like a, a rap about the content. Just trying to really get out of it and just you know, just try, try to involve the students as much as possible.
Tyrone says that teachers in this area have been faced with a number of unprecedented challenges due to the coronavirus. He spoke about how many of these students' parents didn't go to school themselves, making homeschooling a difficult and daunting task. A lot of the kids are also living in overcrowded houses, making it difficult to study and get a sturdy internet connection, while also needing to juggle cultural obligations with schooling. While we remain in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, though, teachers and mentors like Tyrone will continue to work to keep this generation of Indigenous youth in school. My biggest fear um, is that this generation of youth are going to fall further behind. A lot of schools and a lot of people who are involved in these programs will be stressing a little bit. We'll definitely lose a lot of sleep over how far how far back these students are going to go and we need to show that we are committed to this. We're committed to them and we're committed to their communities and you know, if their communities, at the end of this and their communities don't trust us, then, then what have we done? We've just, we've just um, you know, we've given broken promises. Will, will we be proud in 30, 40 years' time if we just you know, look, look the other way and we've got more and more First Nation people in correctional services or you know, in and out of homes, um, more suicide rates, That was Georgia Bennett-Murphy shedding a light on how this pandemic is affecting the education of so many. Text messages now outrank phone calls as the most dominant form of communication among young adults. And why wouldn't it be? Texting is quick straight to the point, and much more efficient than dialing someone's phone number. There is really no wonder why the familiar sound of a phone ring has been replaced by the modern noise of a million little dings. But during a worldwide pandemic, when hearing another's voice or seeing a friend's face is a rare luxury, we are learning that making a phone call isn't all that bad after all. Caitlin Califatis filed this story. So it's 1950. You're watching the TV, and there's an introduction of an orchestral symphony. Hello, everyone. I'm from your telephone company. It's an instructional video, how to use the rotary phone. Learning a new technology isn't a foreign concept to any of us. We're constantly adapting and bringing out more efficient ways to communicate to one another. But during a worldwide pandemic, we're actually taking a tip from the past. Julia and Natalie are two young women who are going through this communication shift together. So usually um, to connect with friends, like obviously socially in person was the way, but coronavirus has obviously had a major impact and I found myself like calling and FaceTiming a lot more friends. So like um, apps like House Party have been pretty big until like the hacking and shit started. Um, I guess my main method of communication would just be seeing people in person. I try to kind of catch up with my friends or my family as much as I can. I think that's kind of the most fun and meaningful way to communicate. Um, but otherwise, obviously, if I am organising something or needing to reach out to someone, I'll just throw them a text. So what are we doing instead? Well, Australians are calling people. We may need to relearn phone etiquette or re-record our old voicemail, but we are finally getting back on the phone. 
We know that dial telephones are easy to use. However, mistakes in dialing do occur. Always listen for the dial tone. My forms of communication have changed a lot since the whole coronavirus outbreak and everyone moving into isolation. Um, I formerly lived in a like college residence, so I was with my friends all the time. Um, we lived together, we ate together, we hung out together, um, so I never really used my phone. Um, since the virus, I've actually moved home. I don't really see anyone, so I'm on my phone a lot more. In the space of just a few short weeks, video sharing app House Party became a global sensation. According to data firm Aptopia, House Party has endured a surge in downloads from an average of 130,000 a week in February to more than 2 million a week in March. As millions have locked themselves away at home in self-isolation, the popularity of the app has been on the rise, but so has the concerns of the app safety. I downloaded the app House Party when I did move home um, because I had heard about it and I guess unlike FaceTime or WhatsApp or other video sharing um, apps you can add like multiple people I think up to eight which is I guess handy when you have like a big group of friends or a big family which I have both luckily. In terms of the app house party you're going to get to know those people you've met at a party once or twice and I feel like that's going to bring on a really awkward situation after coronavirus is like mutuals you've made through house party um, but yeah it's a great way to keep in touch and to spontaneously just chat to someone as if you're bumping into them but the hacking's kind of a downer. This means that another party on your line is using the telephone. When this occurs, hang up. On March 31st, after reports emerged from users of their accounts being hacked, House Party in a statement said the service had found no evidence of such a breach. They also tweeted that they were currently investigating indications that the recent hacking rumours were spread by a paid commercial smear campaign. I did hear about the hacking rumours and to be honest, it didn't really affect me majorly. I guess when video sharing is literally the only form of connection we have left, you kind of have to forget about those little things. I haven't been hacked as of yet, so I'm pretty hopeful that no one's stealing my uh, personal information. Um, but yeah, I still use House Party probably every day. Soon after you dial the number you want, you will hear the ringing signal. Let the telephone ring for at least a minute or about 10 rings to give the person you're calling time to answer. So what happened to making a phone call? There are just simply now better communication options. In a nutshell, texting is more fun. It's quick, to the point, and thriving in a society where convenience is key. But during uncharted territory, when nothing is promised and the usual routine of everyday life is compromised, young adults are taking on the technology of the past. I'm usually not a huge caller. I'm a lot more likely to text someone or like use Snapchat, something that's quick, easy and like straight to the point. I just get a bit, I guess, bored with phone calls. They tend to go on and you feel bad hanging up. It's not a new notion that we are considered the lonely generation. It can be a tough title to bear the generation who have the easiest access to one another through modern technology feel the most alone. A 2018 psychology report from the Australian Psychological Society reported one in four Australians are lonely. So if that's how we felt in 2018, how do we feel now, two years down and a lockdown later? I think texting is a pretty cold form of communication. As I said earlier, it's really great because it's easy and it's straight to the point. 
but I think especially when we're living in these isolated and quite like lonely conditions, um, it's definitely nice and comforting to be able to pick up my phone and see someone face to face, um, talk to them, like you see their emotion and you see a smile, which is always nice. During the age of social separation and physical distancing, it's clear that the benefits of hearing someone's voice or seeing their face has made all the difference. It's uncertain whether or not these newly adapted practices of communication will continue to be used post-pandemic. Perhaps we will take all this for granted and return to our old habits of convenience via text. But for now, pick up the phone, video call someone, and show them your face, because among all of this mess, I can bet they miss seeing it. I think obviously things will change as we go back to normal, but keeping tabs on people through calling and FaceTime is definitely something I'll keep up, or at least try to. Follow these suggestions and you will save time and be pleased with the use and convenience of your dial telephone. Caitlin Califatis with that story there. There's much to be said about how we are communicating with each other during these times. I wonder how this will shape our future when the pandemic ends. Dancing is a physical and magical art form that keeps us feeling alive and healthy. However, due to rules put in place with social distancing, dance classes have become non-essential. Therefore, the physicality of learning dance in a dance studio is no longer possible. What does this mean for dance instructors and dance students in the way of still engaging with one another? What new skills are being formed to keep dance alive? Simona Tev reaches out to a dance instructor and a dance student to see the new ways in which dance is continuing virtually and possibly how it is changing the dance scene. It's just my way of still sharing like the power of dance, the joy of dance, um, because during these times, it's difficult for me to justify people paying for it when there's just so many other things at this current time which people's income needs to go to, I believe. When we think about dance, we think about the feeling of euphoria and freedom taking over our bodies and the human connections we make with other people. In dance classes, when we're hitting the clubs or when we're at parties. The impacts of COVID-19 for many dancers and their instructors means, unfortunately, face-to-face -face classes cease to exist. So how are dance instructors engaging with their students and what new skills are being learnt to keep dance alive? One, two, three. I'm Lowell Dimitita. I'm a dancer and mentor uh, based in Melbourne. Uh, I am trained in a variety of styles um, and I just love movement overall. Uh, inner movement? Uh, inner movement is something that I created early 2017. And it pretty much focuses on the, the lessons that you gain from dance, um, how when you're training dance and practicing dance and enjoying dance, not only are you uh, moving your body, training your body and evolving your body, you're also evolving what's happening inside. So that includes like your mind, your beliefs, your values, your spirituality. Many dance instructors are taking advantage of some online live streaming apps and websites to teach and engage with their dance students. Some of them include Zoom, Instagram Live and Mimi Stream. There's two things though. I'm offering 
free online tutorials. So where I just film myself, where I'm just teaching the dance uh, with the assumption that people can watch it and then like rewind back and learn at their own pace. And these are more so dances that I've created in the past. Um, but then on the flip side, I'm also uh, keeping in touch with like my crew members, uh, my coaching students through Zoom, um, which is a great app I, just to stay connected, I guess. I think it's actually, it's actually, it's really amazing because I feel like people who, who always wanted to dance, um, a lot of their like favorite dancers or people they just couldn't connect with on like overseas now have that opportunity. And I feel like once all this COVID-19 stuff is over, we might potentially be seeing like a whole lot of new faces in the like real world classes. Um, I feel like this, whole situation is a great way for dance to just become more public, if anything, since people are at home on socials and people, the only way people can share dance is online. So I feel like it's just more in your face these days. So I've been dancing for um, about 10 years now. Yeah, I have been taking online classes since the past three weeks. Leslie Huang, a dancer and a new student to online dance classes, shares her experience on what it's like to take live online dance classes in the comfort of her own home. Yeah, so I think online classes are pretty great. Of course there are differences with um, learning in person and learning online, but I feel like you connect with the movement more when you're by yourself. Leslie, what new skills have you learned through learning dance online? I guess you do have to be more attentive and more um, flexible and adaptable with whatever happens because there have been some cases where, you know, um, technology drops out and, like, um, you know, the teacher would have been in the middle of teaching a sequence and then you're like, oh, well, what do I do now? So I think you have to be more independent in a way. Online dance classes, whether live or uploaded, is changing the dance world as we know it. Will we see more popularity in learning dance online and less people taking physical classes when COVID-19 is over? I have two thoughts. <laughs> One is, I think this online thing is amazing because I think a lot of people are noticing um, we can connect with the world so much more. Like we can have people um, in the same like little Zoom meeting chat room class from like Singapore or like, you know, Japan. I've been in a class with someone that's um, been streaming from Singapore while we're in Australia. Um, so I feel like the world would be more connected in that way. And then my second thought was, yeah, it's, it's really tricky um, exploring whether people will be more online after this or more in class because I feel like um yeah people will be missing that essence of being present in class. So for many dancers and instructors there are challenges to face however during these times of isolation we are still finding ways for dance to keep us feeling young wild and free. It's a good time to understand your relationship with dance 
especially since you're doing it alone and you'll be posting it up on social media. I think it's good to question why you would be posting it up on social media, what you're training for, or if you're just enjoying the dance. That was Simone Itev with an insight into the dance industry during this crisis. It is unfathomable to consider how many industries have been affected by our decisions in this moment, and the dance industry is certainly one of them. Next, we have a story by William Van Denderen. He takes a look at how two Australian businesses have acted with extreme flexibility to avoid financial ruin in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Every day I would go into the office and there'd be another three or four million dollars worth of postponements or cancellations that came. Everyone knows there's nothing easy about running your own business. For many, it means a lifestyle of late nights, low financial security and having the odds stacked against you. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 60% of small businesses will cease operation within their first five years. But imagine if you overcame those odds, worked hard, found some success and achieved your dreams. Your business is flying. You're in high demand. Maybe you've even gone multinational. Coronavirus has proven the great leveller for many Aussie businesses that had found this success. Within weeks, many descended from a position of health to one of significant trouble. This is the story of how two Australian businesses have reacted and staved off joining the 60%. When they banned public gatherings is when uh, it became a real problem for us. Uh, everything we do requires a public gathering, basically. So within 48 hours from the uh, from the first call we had, uh, we all of our income for the rest of this year, well, foreseeable future, just, just evaporated. This is Jeremy Fleming. He's a managing director of Sydney-based company Stage Kings. Stage Kings build structures for music festivals, concerts and events. As they celebrated their fifth birthday last month, they were building stages for the Australian Grand Prix and the upcoming season of Ninja Warrior. Coronavirus was not the birthday present anyone within the events industry had asked for. Down in Melbourne, Sam Cooper was facing a similar reality at his sourcing management company, BC Global. As managing director, Sam usually oversees the procurement and fulfilment of clothing and footwear orders for large national retailers. Among other places, BC Global has manufacturing plants in China and Southeast Asia. As coronavirus took hold there and then moved into Australia, Sam watched the production and demand pipeline of his business grind to a very sudden halt. Every day I would go into the office and there'd be another three or four million dollars worth of postponements or cancellations that came. So it became really evident over that sort of two to two and a half week period that we were very, very quickly approaching a position where we had pretty much zero income for an undefined amount of period. We deal with national chains that have got five to 10,000 employees. So we got to a point that at the end of two weeks, our retailers were reporting 95% downturns in sales. Now this is cataclysmic. Both Stage Kings and BC Global were staring down the barrel of becoming businesses without incomes. A surefire way to join Australia's 60%. It was adapt or die. Both have adapted. In a matter of just days, Stage Kings had become ISO Kings, constructing and selling desks, wine racks and vinyl crates from their factories that had been building stages just weeks ago. On the Friday uh, before we started doing these desks is when we told everyone that we, we need to cut right back and, 
it was back to myself and Mick, uh, our head of production. Over that weekend is when we came up with this idea, and by uh, by Monday we had some prototypes, and by Tuesday we were in full production. To achieve this rapid change, Germany's team had to efficiently add to their existing skill set. The main difference is we've gone from being a project-based uh, construction kind of company to uh, now we're an online retail company. So we, we've had to very quickly learn e-commerce. We've had to learn all the online retail kind of thing. And even, even a lot of social media, which is, which is the main way we've been, we've been marketing ourselves. So we're very lucky that some geniuses from the events industry are, uh, are helping us along here. And we've kind of all banded together to, to make this work. For Sam and BC Global, survival meant leveraging long-standing relationships with suppliers to move their produce from something that had lost all of its demand into something that had suddenly boomed, medical equipment. I suppose in some instances we'd always been talking about jeans and t-shirts and knitwear and dresses. We were now just talking about surgical masks and scrubs and clinical gowns and hand sanitizer. At that point we then went back and through the network of retailers that we have but also government and non-government bodies quickly put out the feelers as to see who had any kind of demand and we've been quite successful over those last three to four weeks in being able to supply some of the requirements that have been needed. Both Sam and Jeremy have taken immense satisfaction in not only keeping their businesses afloat but retaining the livelihoods of their staff members. We haven't had to lay anyone off, we haven't had to reduce anyone's hours and we haven't had to reduce anyone's pay. More than anything it's just been great to be able to give and undertaking around job security. I mean, there are so many people doing it so tough at the moment, and for them to at least come into work and know that, you know, what we've been able to secure has given them the ability to go home to their families and say, you know what, at this point in time, it's business as usual. The success of the ISO King desk has quickly returned Stage Kings to their position of strength. On top of this, they've partnered with Support Act, a charity providing finance and aid for musicians and performers who have lost their own work due to the COVID-19 shutdown. In pledging $10 from every sale to the charity, they raised $20,000 in the first three weeks. We've got 52 people working in total now. We've got four workshops operating. We're doing 24 hours a day just to try and keep up. We're doing about 170 desks a day now. What it's about more is, is people's headspace. And so we've got a bunch of guys now back working, doing different things, but everyone's not at home uh, concentrating on the negativity and the, you know, the negative press that, that the coronavirus is getting. So everyone's here staying sane and keeping the lights on. That was William Ventenderen taking us into more detail about the economic overtones of the coronavirus pandemic. It's a pandemic. Good news is hard to come by. It's physically, emotionally, and psychologically challenging for everyone. But for some, like the introverts amongst us, isolation is paradise. Introverts are proficient at stockpiling books to read, filling secret cupboards with chocolate, hoarding soft dressing gowns and cozy slippers. Finally, their time has come to teach others how to master these skills, which might be a new concept to most. Sabah Hashmi has this story. The happiness people get from being around others, I can get by just being by myself. And that's quite awesome. You may find that one person in your house strange who sits in their room all day. And whenever they show their face outside, they're completely happy and satisfied with their day. While some people are irritated and moody, others find this isolation the perfect paradise. I speak, of course, of the introverts. 
For those who may not know the difference between introverts and extroverts, the simplest way to differentiate between the two is to see how each prefers to spend their time. If you're one of those people who loves spending time with large groups of people, talking endlessly with your friends, or someone who just loves being in or around social settings which is full of noise and chatter without feeling tired or restless, you, my friend, are an extrovert. I reserve my energy for things and people that I value. Being an introvert does not mean you have to be antisocial. I still talk to my friends on a daily basis, but I just like being on my own and having my own space. That is Amira Khan, describing the qualities of an introvert. She's a psychology student studying at La Trobe University and considers herself to be the most introverted person she knows. To start off, she spoke about what it's like for a typical introvert in a social situation. I think it's a love-hate relationship. Mostly depends on people I'm interacting with. Like, if I'm with my friends, I'll be really comfortable and even talkative. But in a situation where I'm in a group with unknown people, or even people that I know but I'm not necessarily comfortable with, then I tend to stay quiet. Um, especially in group settings, I would rather blend than stand out, because that's what makes me happy and peaceful. While some people think it's a choice to be either, it really is a matter of your genes and the evolutionary characteristics each of us bears. Introverts have been this way since their transformative beginning, and while they enjoy this innate gift, Others are finally learning to appreciate and recognize the importance of these skills. Do you think knowing your personality type helps with relationships at all, especially under lockdown? Mostly, because normally I don't spend much time outside with my friends, so that time is used in bonding with my family, and I already have a stronger and fulfilling connection with them. So it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm missing out on any huge part of my life, I'm just relaxing with my family and enjoying life while staying indoors like I usually do. But yeah, in a situation like this, it helps having deeper relationships with family so that it doesn't become overbearing for you to stay at home. So what does an introvert's typical Friday night look like? Well, before isolation, the idea of staying at home might have appeared boring to the average extroverted individual. But now... Both groups are spending their nights quite similarly. One of my favorite things to do these days is getting into bed early with my laptop and maybe a cup of tea and some snacks and either writing or reading. It feels so indulgent and making progress always feels euphoric. See, being an introvert is about self-love. The average person is programmed to go outside for enjoyment and pleasure so you'll first need to backtrack and to reprogram a little. When you look at time indoors as an introvert, you see an opportunity to recharge, read, clean, binge watch documentaries and work on creative projects like um, painting. So like after spending enough time indoors working on yourself and your space, you'll actually begin to enjoy staying in more than going out for fun. Why might introverts find isolation easier to deal with than extroverts. Introverts tend to be less motivated to willingly seek out social engagement, so I think they react better in isolation. 
According to Carl Jung, a Swiss psychiatrist, everyone has a level of introversion and extroversion in them. It just depends on which side of the continent is more dominant. So the way introverts would experience pleasure and excitement might be different than extroverts. In times of this COVID-19 isolation, introverts have the upper hand. They have what some might say an evolutionary advantage as they're accustomed to going long periods of time without interacting with friends or family. For an introvert, the excitement of finding a good book will be equal for an extrovert to go on a hike, maybe. One can't relate to the other, but this difference is what makes introverts react better in isolation. Because it has been proven by previous research that extroverts recharge through social interaction and communication, while introverts recharge in solitary and are less prone to the boredom that will afflict many people as social distancing drags on. Do you feel that maybe you have always been ready for a pandemic? I think it's safe to say that introverts have been training to fight coronavirus for years and that we could potentially be ready for the next pandemic. Um, which is kind of true because deep down cancelling plans and avoiding people is essentially how introverts feel comfortable and perhaps even excited. That was Sabah Hashmi with our final story for the episode. Earlier, I told you about how a new skill I had taken up was cooking. Now, bear in mind this isn't something I'm particularly familiar with. University students, we aren't typically known for pioneering in the kitchen, although we can be quite innovative, particularly with a limited budget. But with the family kitchen at my disposal and a pantry stocked with herbs and spices not touched since 2003, I set out to make the perfect chicken chow mein. This is how it went. Just in the car, passenger seat the way down to the to the local tucker store to buy the ingredients for uh, this chicken chow mein just in the uh, vegetable section coming up on the enormity of greenery that's required by chow mein what do we got some choice some okay i'm uh, i'm here in the kitchen 20 seconds Happy birthday. Hugely important to remember to wash your hands, uh, both after returning from the supermarket, but whenever you feel the urge. Beautiful. Alright, so step one, place noodles in a heat-proof bowl, cover with boiling water and set aside for five minutes or until the noodles separate, then drain. Now this seems like a step I am well and truly capable of. Let's find out. That bowl will do. Okay, the boiling water is going over the noodles. Okay, our wok is on the stove. And I'm just going to whack on the heat. Nice. One tablespoon. Okay, I'm going to take it real professional. Not even use one tablespoon. I'm just going to guess because I'm that advanced. Is it a crime to have too much oil? I wouldn't have thought so. Next thing we need to add is our chicken. 
So this sound you can hear is chicken in the wok doing its thing with the oil. This is good. It's going well. Okay, small emergency. Um, I got too excited by the chicken and forgot to cut up my veggies, so I've brought on the help of my mum, Fiona. That's the knife I need. Okay, the capsicum is being cut. And then we're onto the wombok over here. Okay, wombok's on the way, capsicum's done, now onto carrots. Quick update and progress report. I found out that when you're stir-frying, it requires a lot of stirring in order to fry. I'm also under the impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that making a mess is a good thing when you're cooking. Although this is going to be quite the clean-up job. Spring onion coming right up. Crisis averted on multiple counts. In goes the curry powder now. That is aromatic. Another progress report slash observation. Uh, wombok boils away to not much. So in other words, just fill the wok with more wombok, I said wombat, than you can possibly imagine. Because at the end, there'll be nothing left anyway. The aroma's quite nice here in, uh, in the kitchen. I can really sense this is going to be a rip snorter of a meal. But that's to be seen. Now it's time to add the wombok alongside the spring onion, the choisum, and of course the oyster sauce, soy sauce, and noodles, which are the most important part of the flavor. Okay, the noodles are in. Every ingredient is now in the dish. What an adventure this has been. Is it good? Very nice, thank you. Yes! That's one out of three. I feel like I'm on X Factor. Okay, Bernard, how is it? That's very nice, Tyson. Oh, yes! Okay, Fiona, how does it taste? Delicioso, Tyson. Oh, and an Italian twang! <laughs> Bang! One, two, three. I've done it. I've won. The great part of a podcast is you will never know if it tasted any good, and this could all be a complete fabrication. But I'm telling you, you can learn how to cook. It just takes some willpower and willingness to get messy. That is my chicken chow min. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for indulging me in that moment of self-accomplishment. This has been an episode about survival in many ways. So many of us have been put in a place never experienced in our lifetimes. And right now, we're doing our best to get through. We're finding new ways to stay connected in a challenging environment where tragedy abounds. These skills which we are learning may alter the future of our society. Will we see more working from home in the years to come now that we've all been practicing it so much? Has this moment reminded us not to take things for granted? And how has this experience changed our perception of what constitutes as essential? Remember to follow our podcast on Twitter at cover underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook. And finally, please get in touch with us by leaving a voice message on our phone number 03-9018-5005. You've been listening to the Undercover Podcast. If you're a frontline health worker, I want to say thank you for all you are doing. And to everyone else, I'm Tyson Whelan. Stay safe. 
and goodbye.